Amen. Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you here at ASI. I have been sitting just over there adjacent to where you're at, and I have noticed that you seem, at least to me, to be a little subdued, which for me is uncharacteristic of ASI. So is it jet lag, or are you feeling just pensive? And yes, my observation is further confirmed. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> Forgive me, but this, this ambiance, this, this deportment is not going to work for me. So hopefully, we can muster a little bit of enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on earth. Amen? Amen. There have been some profound and powerful and heart-moving testimonies I have been thrilled as I have heard what God is doing in the world, and I have been a little surprised. Maybe you need just a little spanking as we begin. I have been a little surprised at your pensivity, and so I would urge you to participate with me in an enthusiastic study of the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? Incidentally, the word enthusiasm, if you're uh, interested in the etymology of that word, actually comes from two words, en meaning in, and theos meaning God. The word enthusiasm literally means the joy and attitude that comes from being in a relationship with God. And so when people tell me, oh, I like you, you're an enthusiastic preacher, I say, I'm trying my best. I'm trying to be in a saving and happy relationship with God. Our message tonight is a very important one, and really it uh, sort of just matures and tries to put some legs on the things that we've been hearing tonight, to put some legs on our lessons and some feet on our faith. And so what we're going to try and do is paint a biblical theological picture for the very kinds of things that we have been hearing tonight, the testimonies and the experiences of God's people, and really, frankly, for what ASI is all about. I've had the privilege of being involved with ASI for the last almost 15 years. Can you say amen to that? And from the very beginning of my conversion to Christ, the very beginning of my conversion um, to Seventh-day Adventism, ASI has been part and parcel of my life and my ministry, and it is an honor to have been asked to be here for the keynote address. And so what we're going to try and do is encapsulate biblically, theologically, uh, tonight in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what ASI is all about. And so we're going to begin appropriately with a word of prayer, and then we're going to be getting into it. You did bring your Bibles, of course. Yes? Yes? I know you have your little programs, and you've got all of your, well, you're beginning to get your various ASI accoutrements, but you're going to need your Bibles tonight. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our presentation titled, Blessed Are the Peacemakers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is a great privilege and an honor to be here this evening. Father, we are gathered together in keeping with the promise of Hebrews chapter 10 in which you tell us that we should gather together more and still more as we see the day approaching. And Father, surely we are living in strange and portentous times, unusual times. As we look around us, the world seems to be falling apart at the seams, but Father, we pray that as the world falls apart increasingly, that we would not be falling apart with it, but that we would be complete, that we would be whole, that we would be that we would be joined together in Christ and in His righteousness. Father, here at the ASI Convention, you know that we are about the upbuilding of the kingdom of God, and we are about the correct and enthusiastic proclamation of the character of God. And so, Father, tonight as we seek to set these two gems in their proper orientation, as we seek to 
understand what that means, the kingdom of God and the character of God. Father, I pray that we would be able tonight to be able to say that we are each kingdom builders and peacemakers. I want to thank you for every person that has testified, every experience that we have heard tonight. Father, prosper these ministries, the outreach there at Heritage Academy and the Watch of the Hills team and the AII mission and all of the others that were mentioned, Father. May you prosper us as we seek in our own feeble and, and often faulty way to build your kingdom. Father, help us to be not just kingdom builders but kingdom participants that we ourselves may say with the Apostle Paul that our citizenship is in heaven. So please, Father, tonight as we kick off our inaugural keynote address, we pray that it would be a spirited presentation and that you would empty us of self and empty us of our own desires to advance our kingdoms and our glory and that we would be here desiring only the goodness and glory of your kingdom and your Son. So be with us now as we open your word. May you open us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to the book of Matthew, and we're going to chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be spending the balance of our time tonight, in fact, almost all of our time, in what is referred to commonly and colloquially, though not scripturally, as the Sermon on the Mount. We refer to it simply that way because Jesus delivered this sermon, this inaugural public address from, you guessed it, a mountain. And we're going to be looking here in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, but primarily Matthew chapter 5, the first part of Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be trying to under, we're going to try and understand what Jesus was communicating in the opening part of this address what, that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in order to do that, what we're going to try and do is listen to the Sermon on the Mount contextually. What's the word, everyone? Contextually. Now, one of the most difficult things to do as someone living in the 21st century, for myself and for each of us, is to read the Bible in a contextual way. It can be very easy for us to read the Bible with a 21st century perspective, to read the Bible with a modern perspective, when it is true that the Bible has a great deal of modern application. Can we say amen to that, everyone? But there can be no question that the Bible is an ancient book that needs to first be understood in its original context, and after we have understood what was meant then, we can then ask the question what it means now. Now, we're going to what is referred to simply as the Sermon on the Mount, and this is Jesus' first public address, as we've already said. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, more so than Mark, Luke, or John, Jesus sets, Matthew rather, as an author, sets up the Sermon on the Mount as a sort of sequence in which Jesus is seen as the new fulfillment of Israel, and not just as the fulfillment of Israel, but as He's sort of tracing the chronological uh, historical steps that Israel had gone through, Jesus is presented as the Messiah. Matthew does this purposefully, evangelistically, and certainly apologetically, just to give a little bit of a context here. For example, in ancient Israel, the way that Israel originally ended up going into Egypt prior to the Exodus was that a man named Joseph had dreams. What was his name, everyone? His name was Joseph. A man named Joseph had dreams, and in the context of those dreams, the children of Israel, literally the descendants of Jacob, went into Egypt for a time. They remained there for a time, and then they were called out of Egypt, and we refer to this simply as the exodus or the leaving of Egypt. 
Hosea refers to this, Hosea the prophet, in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, when it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so Israel here is not just a national entity, but, but an entity in which it takes on the position of sonship. It is a child of God. And Egypt, or Israel rather, had gone into Egypt because of a man named Joseph having dreams, remained in Egypt for a time. Now, as the children of Israel are then called out of Egypt, the very first experience that they have as they're leaving Egypt, the ten plagues have fallen, is they meet this major obstacle known as the Red Sea. What's the obstacle, everyone? the Red Sea, and they passed through the Red Sea. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 picks up on this imagery and says that as they passed through the Red Sea, they were all, I wonder if anyone knows, they were all, he gives it a theological application, they were all baptized in the Red Sea. And so he makes application here that the passing through the Red Sea was analogous to the New Testament experience of a believer being baptized. And so he sees them coming through, and he says, this is the baptism. Now, I just have to ask a quick true or false question here. True or false, it was God's plan for Israel to wander in the desert for 40 years. Okay, false. Very good. So his plan was for them to go from uh, the passing through of the Red Sea to a certain place to a certain location. And what was that location? Who remembers? To Mount Sinai. Okay. So, the distance, according to the book of Exodus, the time that it took them, the duration that it took them from the Red Sea passing to Mount Sinai was just about a month, roughly a month, give or take. It could have been 40 days, which will become important in just a moment. And so, let's just sort of take stock of what we've got. A man named Joseph has dreams, and the children of Israel go into Egypt, where they remain for a time, and then they are called out of Egypt, and the first experience that they pass through is the Red Sea, the first significant experience, the first significant obstacle. Then from the Red Sea, they go through a wilderness period of wandering, actually just a wilderness journey, through the wilderness of sin, and they come to Mount Sinai. So get the sequence in your mind. Now, we know that after Mount Sinai, the children of Israel are going to wander in the wilderness for some 40 years, but this was not part of God's original plan. God's original plan goes like this, into Egypt, remain in Egypt, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. Are we together, everyone? Yes or no? Now, Jesus walks through this, I believe intentionally, and other scholars share that perspective. Jesus walks through this basic perspective intentionally, and Matthew more than Mark, more than Luke, more than John, sets forward Jesus as the Messiah, as the new Israel, and opens His gospel, basically Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2. Of course, Matthew chapter 1 is the begats, but then Matthew chapter, the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is a man named Joseph having dreams, and the angel says, take the child where? Take the child into Egypt, remain there for a time, and then when the person that sought to do him harm, Herod, is dead, then he's called what? out of Egypt. That's Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Now, what Bible student wants to tell me, what takes place in Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3, there's an event that takes place there. It is the um, baptism. Very good. Thank you. And so, here we have into Egypt, remain in Egypt, called out of Egypt through the baptism experience. That's Matthew chapter 3. Now, you tell me what happens in Matthew chapter 4. The temptation in the wilderness, it lasts for… 40 days, which is analogous to or corresponds to the 40 days in the 40 years in the wilderness. But again, we want to remind ourselves that was not part of God's plan. Some wilderness wandering, some wilderness traveling was part of God's plan, but it would have been simply the amount of time to, tra to traverse, to, to move from the Red Sea experience to what was the next place they were going after they passed through the wilderness? 
to Mount Sinai. And so notice the corollaries here. Matthew sets this forth in his gospel intentionally. The child Jesus goes into Egypt, remains there for a time. He's called out of Egypt. Incidentally, Matthew makes this identical application himself. Matthew has a favorite word that he uses over and over and over again in his gospel. In fact, he uses it more than Mark, Luke, and John combined, and his word is fulfilled. The word is what, everyone? Fulfilled. What Matthew begins to do is the same thing that Paul also loved to do, is he begins to read experiences and incidences and passages from the Old Testament, and he begins to take them and put them in a new frame, in a new setting, and he says, this happened so that it might be fulfilled, and then he gives a messianic application. This happened that it might be fulfilled, and he gives a fulfillment in Christ. This happened that it might be fulfilled, and this just comes up over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. In fact, the passage that we just mentioned a moment ago, Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, that originally applied to Israel going into Egypt, out of Egypt I have called my son, Matthew takes that passage and says, this was fulfilled in Jesus. And so the basic sequence of a man named Joseph has dreams into Egypt, remain in Egypt, out of Egypt, pass through the Red Sea baptism experience, then into the wilderness, 40 days, and then into the mountain or toward the mountain is a basic apologetic structure. It's Matthew setting forth his gospel in an apologetic evangelistic sense to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. Are we together, everyone? Yes or no? That this is the God. He is fulfilling step by step, point by point, the national ambitions and overcoming the national failures of Israel. Now, here's the amazing thing. This is where, where it gets right to where we want to be. Who was it? Or t- tell me just a very simple question here. What was the significance of Mount Sinai? I just, your enthusiasm is just disturbing. Your lack of enthusiasm is just astonishing. This is the ASI convention. This is not an insurance seminar. Um, I don't know what to say. I'm a little stupefied here. So let's try that again. The significance of the, the, the Sinai experience was what? What happened there? Okay, they received the law, and the law was written on tables of, with the finger of, now here's the question, whose finger was that? Now you say, God's, more precisely whose finger was that? That's the finger of Jesus. That's the finger of Jesus. Now, the Father was certainly there, that's clear, but Jesus is the one there who's communing with Moses, who's writing, and so here's a very fascinating thing that's happening. What we basically do is move through this sequence, this history of Israel, in which we go from Egypt through the Red Sea experience. This is exactly what happened. This is Matthew 1, this is Matthew 2. Matthew 3 is the baptism. Matthew chapter 4 is the wilderness experience. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the New Testament Sinai. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the New Testament Sinai. Jesus in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, writing with his finger on tablets of stone, is now in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 saying things like this. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you, here Jesus, the law giver from Exodus chapter 20, is the law explicator, the law expositor. He is basically saying, this is what the law means. Are we together, everyone? Yes or no? Now, here's the significant thing. For Jesus to stand up, and he uses this refrain incidentally six times in the Gospel of Matthew. Six times he says this, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. Jesus very clearly here, very purposefully and very unambiguously, is setting Himself against. Setting Himself, what word did I say, everyone? Setting Himself over and against the prevailing religious opinions of the day. That's what He's doing. You have heard, but I'm saying. 
You have heard, but I'm saying. Jesus here is the, he's on top of the new Sinai. He is on top of the new Sinai. The Sermon on the Mount is the new Sinai in which God is not, no, 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 in no way undoing or obfuscating what was done in the Old Testament. He is clarifying and elucidating what had been lost sight of during this period of Jewish uh, apostasy. Now, to sort of set the context here a little bit, we need to understand that when Jesus would have stood on top of the new Sinai, on top of the Sermon on the Mount, or the, the mountain from which He would preach the Sermon on the Mount, how old approximately would He have been? Sort of 60? Okay, sort of 30 years old. Now, we need to try and understand, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand the Sermon on the Mount in its historical context, in its biblical context. In its what, everyone? In its biblical and historical context. And so when Jesus stands up, He's approximately 30 years old, by, his, by the standards of His own culture, He's a whippersnapper. He's a kid. He could have been as young as 27 or 28. The Bible says he was about 30. So he stands up there unmarried and therefore uh, prim, uh, disqualified uh, just uh, by virtue of his non-married status from being a member of the Sanhedrin. He had not been to the school of the scribes. He had not been to the school of the Pharisees. In other words, he hadn't been to seminary. Here's the question. What was then his preparation to stand up and have the temerity, have the audacity to say to Israel, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say unto you. What would have been his earthly preparation? What was he doing prior to standing up as this provocative young rabbi? What was he doing? He was a carpenter. He was the son of a carpenter. Now, you, you need to sort of get this in your mind's eye. Here's Jesus day in, day out, right, except for the Sabbath, sawing and measuring and hammering. But ever since the age of 12, Jesus had known that this is not what God had put him on earth to do primarily. Now, this is intimated in the Gospel of Luke, but communicated expressly in the book, The Desire of Ages. It's intimated in Luke. In fact, in Luke chapters uh, 2 and 3, and especially Luke chapter 2, Jesus goes to the temple. He goes to the what, everyone? He goes to the temple, and how old is he? In keeping with Jewish tradition, in keeping with Jewish… He was 12 years old. Very good. So Jesus is brought to the temple at the age of 12, and at the age of 12, he has a realization. He sees the lamb being slain. He sees it with his own eye. He sees the Paschal lamb being slain, and he has a moment here. He has a, he has a revelation. He has an epiphany. Again, this is hinted at in Luke and communicated expressly in the Desire of Ages. He realizes under the unction of the Spirit and through his own study of the Scriptures, that lamb is you. You're the lamb. Now, many, many, many years later, his elder cousin John would eventually say, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But at some point, there was a realization. To sort of set a little bit of a context here, when Jesus was a young boy and He was sitting on Mary's lap, when Jesus is sitting on Mary's lap at the age of two, at the age of three, at the age of four, Jesus is not saying to Mary, Mary, let me tell you what it was like in the celestial glories before eternity began. Let me… No, 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 no. There is some instruction going on here, but it's not from Jesus toward Mary. Mary is saying to Jesus, Jesus… Let me tell you of the extraordinary circumstances surrounding your birth. Let me tell you of the angel that appeared. And it would be Mary that was communicating to Jesus, and so Jesus would be learning. Jesus would be what, everyone? 
learning. We, we, we sometimes read the Bible in a very anachronistic way. We read the Bible from a 21st century perspective. We read the Bible and, and we basically assume, we already know Jesus died, He buried, and He was rose again. And we read assuming that, that everybody in their original chronological context understood that. They didn't know that. Here's Jesus learning from Mary, and Jesus would have said to Mary, or Mary would have said to Jesus, you're an extraordinary boy. These are the circumstances surrounding your birth. You are the Messiah. She would have believed that. She would have had faith in that. She would have exercised faith. And at some point, the three-year-old Jesus, the four-year-old Jesus, the five-year-old Jesus, it's time for him as the 12-year-old Jesus to go to the temple. But when the 12-year-old Jesus comes to the temple and he sees the lamb being slain, in some fundamental and revelatory way, he realizes, that's me. I'm the guy. Again, John the Baptist, his elder cousin, would later confirm something that Jesus had known for many years when he was sawing, when he was measuring, when he was pounding. So here's Jesus. His preparation for standing on the new Sinai, his preparation for saying, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say. His preparation was he was a carpenter. He had not been to the school of the scribes or the schools of the Pharisees. He was a carpenter. And at some point, Jesus would have known, beginning at about the age of 12 and to approximately the age of 30, so the better part of 20 years, he would have known one day he's going to lay that saw down. And one day he's going to take that hammer and hang it up. And one day he's going to take that tape measure, that yarn, roll it up and put it away. Not for the evening, not for the weekend, not for the Sabbath, but for good. And he's going to take off the garb of, of a carpenter. He's going to take off his carpentry clothes, his carpentry garb. And he's going to, in the minds and estimation of many, presumptuously put on the garb of a rabbi and an instructor. And here Matthew paints the picture. He paints this apologetic, evangelistic picture of Jesus tracing point by point, step by step, right through the history of national Israel until eventually in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus, as the new Messiah, arrives on top, not as the new Messiah, but as the Messiah, arrives on top of the new Sinai and has the temerity and the audacity to say, you have heard, but I say. Now try and hear that through a first century perspective. We don't know how many people were gathered there, maybe several hundred, perhaps as many as a thousand or more, probably a crowd smaller than this. But just imagine that you're sitting there on that gentle sloping hillside, and here comes this provocative young rabbi. Now, there's a kind of sense of electricity and excitement about this guy. Some people had heard a rumor that he had gone to a wedding in Cana, and water had actually been turned to wine, but, you know, these things are hard to believe. Somebody else had actually claimed to have been to his baptism, and in the context of his baptism, they thought they had heard a voice from heaven saying, can you believe it? this is my beloved Son in whom I am all pleased. But others said, no, 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 it's just thunder. And so there was this kind of sense of, of anticipation and electricity as Jesus stands to the front and begins to speak. Who is this guy? There was a sense of awareness. There was a sense of electricity. There was a sense of expectation in the air. And so try and sit there in your mind's eye on that gently sloping hill and listen to Jesus, not as somebody who knows how the story turns out. The people who would have heard Jesus in this context, they didn't know that He was going to die and be buried and rise again. They didn't know that. Who is this guy? 
Who does this guy think he is? And frankly, just to be perfectly candid and not irreverent at all, the only thing you could have thought, probably, in the context of that initial presentation of Jesus as the Messiah to Israel, who had been looking forward to him for more than a thousand years, to the Messiah, the only thing you probably could have thought is, who does this guy think he is? Like, seriously, who does he think he is? Incidentally, Matthew wants you to know that that's exactly what people were thinking, and he tells you that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, last two verses of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew is very intentional about recording the response of the people, and take a look at the response of the people in Matthew chapter 7. It says, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, in context, the Sermon on the Mount, When Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were, what does your Bible say? The people were astonished at His teaching. Now, you give me some synonyms for astonished. They were, they were amazed. They were, they were surprised. They were, were they shocked? So, the people were shocked. They were surprised. They were amazed. They were, the people were amazed at His sayings. According to verse 29, what was the source of their astonishment? Take a look at verse 29. What was the source of their astonishment? For He taught them as one having authority and not as the, as the scribes and the Pharisees. No wonder Jesus six times, six times purposefully, He would have thought about this. This was not some haphazard fly by the seat of your pants, serendipitous, we'll see how it works out. No, 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 no. Jesus for years is thinking about this presentation. Jesus is sawing, but His mind is on the mountain. Jesus is measuring, but His mind is on the mountain. Jesus is hammering, but His mind is on the mountain. And so when Jesus steps forward on top of the new Sinai to begin to announce His kingdom and announce the character of God, He is absolutely intentional. He is what word, everyone? He is intentional. You have been hearing, but I say. You have been, but I say. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lusteth after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You have been hearing, but I'm telling you something different. Jesus here sets Himself up in a radical and revelatory, but even more than that. It's more than radical and it's more than revelatory. There's another word that starts with an R I'd like to submit to you here. But in the context of submitting this word, let me read you a simple statement from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. What's the book, everyone? Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. This is page 147. His words, Sermon on the Mount, had struck at the very root of their former ideas and opinions, the very root. To obey His teaching would require a change in all. Let's say that word together. Would require a change in all of their habits of thought and action. In other words, this is totally radical. The the root word of radical literally means root. When we say that something is radical, it means that it's root. It is is fundamentally different. It, It would require a change in all of their habits of thought and action. It would bring them into collision with their religious teachers. Now, listen to this. For it would involve the overthrow of the whole structure that for generations the rabbis had been rearing. To obey Jesus would require a change in all of their habits of thought and action because it would require the overthrow of the whole structure that for generations the rabbis had been rearing. Now you tell me, what does that sound like? The overthrow of a, of a rabbinical religious structure. What's the word? What's the word? Beloved, that's a revolution. 
You see, what Jesus is doing on Mount Sinai is not merely revelatory. He's not merely revealing. It's not merely radical. He's not laying the axe to the root of the tree. What Jesus is doing is absolutely, patently, unequivocally revolutionary. When Ellen White uses the language, the overthrowing of whole structures that the, genera- that the rabbis have been rearing for generations, that's a revolution. Jesus knows that he has stepped into a very precarious place. Now, let's paint historically this very precarious location into which Jesus has just stepped, not merely as a man, but as the Son of God come as the Messiah. The Jews believed they were the promised people of God. They, they were the chosen people of God. This, this, this attachment to Abraham and God's call of Abraham was so, was so part of the Jewish psyche that on one occasion, when John the Baptist was preaching, he anticipated their objection. John the Baptist is preaching his heart out, and he anticipates their objections. Ah, 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 ah. Don't even begin to say within yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For verily I say unto you that God is able to raise up children unto Abraham from these very stones. There was this sort of expectation. There was this sense, I'm a Jew. I am genealogically, historically related to Abraham, and I am a person of God. I am a child of God by virtue of my Jewishness. Are we together, everyone? Yes or no? And so, so... Just imagine the cognitive dissonance that would have existed in first century Judaism when you're the chosen people of God, and yet you know that your history, your history is basically a history of successive subjugations to pay power. God, but you are in subjection to Egypt. You're the chosen people of God, but you are in subjection to the Babylonians. You're the chosen people of God, but you are in subjection to the Persians. You're the chosen people of God. but now you're in subjection to Rome. Can you begin to see the cognitive dissonance that would emerge? We are the chosen people of God, never mind the fact that our history is littered. It's basically one grand story of folly being in subjection to a pagan nation. Are we together, everyone? Yes or no? Well, trying to deal with that cognitive dissonance was the primary plight of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century Judaism, pre-B.C. I'm talking B.C., 3rd century, 2nd century, and 1st century Judaism, B.C. Now, In order to try and cope into this, to cope with this issue and this vacuum into which Jesus is speaking, here's Jesus. He's speaking into a situation. Jesus is not merely speaking into a 21st century situation. He's not just talking for talking's sake. Jesus is intentional here and he's speaking into a situation. The situation into which Jesus is speaking is that Israel is absolutely confused, has been for the better part of a thousand years, and different camps have sort of emerged to help Israel deal with this cognitive dissonance. How do we continually, proudly, and in the context of the New Testament, often self-righteously say, we are the chosen people of God, and yet we're in subjection to Rome, which is just the latest and last of pagan powers to which we are subjected? How would this cognitive dissonance be ameliorated? How would it be dealt with? Well, in the context of Jesus in the first century, you had four groups of people. How many groups of people, everyone? Four groups of people. Two of them will be very familiar to you. They are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The other two not as familiar, the Essenes and the Zealots. You basically had four groups of people that were vying for the allegiance and vying for the intellectual allegiance of the people of God. How do we say we're God's true people when we're in subjection to pagan nation after pagan nation after pagan nation after pagan nation? Well, the Pharisees, basically their solution to the cognitive dissonance was to internalize and isolate themselves in, a, in an increasingly deeper and contrived version of Judaism. 
And this is classic uh, fourth, fifth, uh, fourth, third, second, and first century, even beyond that B.C. Judaism. Basically, the Pharisees internalized, they, they, became, they became very, very occupied with Jewishness, and there were rabbinical debates, this rabbi debating against this rabbi, and, and what does this mean? And, and they basically pretended as though there was no Roman army. As, there, as though there was no Roman occupation, they just internalized, and that's how they dealt with the cognitive dissonance. This is what we find in the New Testament. The Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees who internalized their religiosity and became very isolated and, and elitist with it, the Sadducees began to curry favor with the Romans, and they basically said, well, if we can't beat them, we'll join them. The Sadducees, the Sadducees were kind of the intellectual elite of Jesus' day. They were like the secular religious people. Today, we would, in our nomenclature, we would call them the religious liberals. They were secular, they were secular uh, people. They, they didn't really buy into all of the Scripture. What they were more interested in was education, Hellenism, and, and basically currying favor with the Romans so that they could be perceived as sort of Roman and not patently Jewish, though they did retain certainly some of their Jewish identity, such as the high priest, etc. And so that's the Sadducees, sort of the, the liberals or the distancing yourself from your religiosity. Now, the Essenes, uh, we hear no mention of them in the New Testament, and this is to be expected because the way the Essenes dealt with this cognitive dissonance is they simply moved out into the country. They just, moved, they just moved away. They just said, man, all Israel's gone to hell in a handbasket. They've gone to pot. They don't follow the law anymore. Total apostasy. And so they just moved into the country. They lived in little tents and communes. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls, part of what's called the Qumranic community, was almost certainly an Essenic community. They had moved away. We don't encounter them in the New Testament because they were off in the bush, just off in the bush trying to deal with this, with this great big issue of of how are we the people of God and the actual circumstances in which they found themselves. That were the, those were the Essenes. And the fourth and final group were the Zealots. Simon was probably a zealot, and the zealots, of course, root word zeal. They sought to deal with this cognitive dissonance, this, this disconnect between what they should be seeing and what they are seeing by attacking militarily the Roman people. They were sort of the guerrilla warfare. They were kind of the Hamas, if I can use that analogy, of Israel fighting these guerrilla battles at night by, by sort of these military and militaristic means uh, in these guerrilla surprise attacks over and against the Romans. And so they were the zealots. They were going to actively bring about. They would be like the sort of radical religious fanatics. So here's Jesus. He's 27, he's 28, he's 29. He's been sawing boards, measuring boards, and pounding on boards his whole life. At some point, he knows since the age of 12, he's going to have to step out of this very safe, very secure situation and into a hotbed of religious difficulty, controversy, and confusion. He has to be very careful with his language. He has to be very careful with his loyalties. He has to be extremely careful because if he's perceived, which by the way, this is the background for the New Testament. This is the background for the, for the Gospels. If the Sadducees can set Jesus over and against the Pharisees, or if the Pharisees can set him over and against the Sadducees, basically Jesus has to stand into this gap, into this, into this crucible of culture. We'll come back to that in just a second. Jesus has to stand in this place when all of these different competing views of what's going on in the world are vying for His allegiance and vying for His attention, and He has to be very careful how He chooses even His associates and how He chooses even His language and His vocabulary, because if He begins to speak like a Pharisee, He's classified as a Pharisee, so He has to avoid Pharisaical talk. If He begins to speak like a Sadducee, He's classified as a Sadducee. Everybody's trying to put Jesus in a, in a hole. Everybody's trying to say, so who is this guy? 
Is he a Pharisee? Is he telling us to internalize? Is that how we deal with this cognitive dissonance? Is he a Sadducee? Is he trying to curry favor with the Romans? Is he telling us that we should move off into the, into the, the ditches and off into the bush with the Essenes? Or is he trying to have some, some grand, uh, uh, almost uh, uh, riotous um, guerrilla attack against the Romans? Is that what he's trying to do, is marshal his forces? Well, all of these four peoples, all of these four groups that are vying for the attention and vying for the allegiance of every single Jew, every Jew at some level intellectually would have fallen into the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots. Even if they weren't an Essene, they would have intellectually been favorable to the Essenes or to the Pharisees or to the Sadducees or to the Zealots. And Jesus basically shows up on the scenes and says, you've all got it totally wrong. It's not the Sadducees, it's not the Pharisees, it's not the Zealots, and it's not the Essenes. There's a whole new thing that is taking place here. Ellen White puts it this way. When Jesus opens His mouth, the very first thing He says, what's He going to say, man? Twenty years of preparation? Speaking into this cauldron of religio-social, cultural difficulty? What's He going to say? And he stands there and takes his place on the new Sinai. Sense of electricity, sense of anticipation in the air. Who is this guy? Is he a Pharisee? Is he a Sadducee? I heard he turned water to wine. Is he a zealot? What's he going to say? The sense of expectation in the air. And Jesus opens his mouth. And he says, in the words of Ellen White, words that fell on the audience, first century audience, not 21st century, that fell on the ears of the audience as strange and new. Strange and new. That's what Matthew's saying. That's what Matthew's saying when when he says that the people were astonished at his teaching. What is he going to say? He's going to say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, my paraphrase of Ellen White's words, these words were a bombshell. These words were totally unlike anything that they were hearing in first century Judaism. She says they were strange and new. What is it? Blessed are the poor in spirit? The culture into which Jesus is speaking, the situation into which Jesus is speaking is one in which your Jewishness recommends you to God, and if you're a healthy Jew, you're doubly recommended to God, and if you're a healthy, wealthy Jew, you are triply recommended to God, and Jesus stands up 20 years in preparation, 20 years in rumination, 20 years in thinking, and the first words out of His mouth are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kaboom! Let the revolution begin. Who is this guy? Jesus then begins to take them on an unprecedented journey through what we refer to so innocuously and glibly as the Beatitudes. Oh, the Beatitudes. Oh, that's so nice, the Beatitudes. And we get out our little cross stitch and we say, oh, blessed. I love this. I'm going to put a little bluebird here, a little sunshine, a little flower, and we cross stitch. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or, better yet, blessed are the meek 
yes, a little bluebird, sunshine, rainbow, for theirs is the kingdom. And we take that thing, we frame it, and we put it over the toilet in the guest bathroom, and, and we say, look at this. So when people are, I guess, I guess, I guess when people are relieving themselves, this is, the, blessed are the, look at the bluebirds. Oh, that is so nice. It's so innocuous. It's so glib. In Jesus, when Jesus was speaking, these were like missiles. These were bombs that were being dropped on first century Judaism. These were not cute little cross-stitch, oh, a little coaster. Oh, look at that, the Beatitudes coaster set. There's nine of them. No, 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 no. <laughs> when Jesus is speaking here, he has a whole new, he has to rewire their minds and their brains. Now, you're thinking, oh, this sounds, this sounds too strong, all this revolutionary language. Another statement, Desire of Ages, page 300. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sought to undo. What's the word, everyone? undo the work that had been wrought by false education and to give his hearers a right conception of his kingdom and of his own character. So here's Jesus. He's sawing, but he's thinking. He's measuring, but he's thinking. He's hammering, but he's thinking. How can I get these people to see who God really is and what the kingdom of heaven really is? Mark, Luke, John never used this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, never once. It's Matthew's term. This is Matthew's term, and he presents it over and over again. The first thing Jesus says has to do with the kingdom of heaven and the character of God. Jesus speaks into this vortex. Jesus speaks into this whirlwind. Jesus is standing at the crucible of culture, everybody waiting him to putting him into a box. You're in this box, you're in this box, you're in this box, you're in this box. And Jesus says, I'm in no box. I'm in God's kingdom, as a matter of fact. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that recognize their spiritual poverty because heaven is their home. Amen. Strange and new. Totally different. These words fall like, 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 like a different language on the ears of the people to which Jesus is speaking. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. In the paragraph just before the one I just read you from Desire of Ages, page 300, Ellen White writes a single phrase. She writes of unrestricted access. That's her phrase, not mine. Unrestricted access access to the Father in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, you think the Sermon on the Mount is, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said. You, we think it's all of this moral exhortation. Hey, if somebody slaps you on the right, give them the left. If somebody, you know, urges you to, to, to go with them a mile, go with them too. We have all of this moral exhortation, but Jesus never gets to the moral exhortation until He first gives them, her phrase, not mine, unrestricted access to the Father. Well, how am I ever going to get unrestricted access to the Father? Well, it's not going to be because I'm so good at turning the other cheek when somebody's bludgeoning me. And it's not going to be because I'm such a great guy that I walk two miles when somebody asks me only to go one. I get unrestricted access to the Father when I realize that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. When I realize that I am perfectly, totally, spiritually impoverished and I have nothing to recommend me to God. Jesus thought about this for 20 years. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher who preached in, in the Westminster Cathedral for almost 10 years on the book of Romans, fantastic commentary series. 10 years he preached on the book of Romans. And Dr. Jones said, Lloyd-Jones said, that there is no greater articulation, his words are, there is no more perfect articulation of the great truth of justification by faith than this beatitude. Blessed are the poor 
in spirit. Because heaven is for these people. Jesus introduces people to a God who cannot be appeased by their goodness, who cannot be appeased by their, by their internalization of religiosity, a la the Pharisees, or their currying favor with the, with the Romans, a la the Sadducees. Jesus is introducing a whole new radical thing here. You get unrestricted access to the Father, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is and because of what He is about ready to do. He doesn't say yours will be the kingdom of heaven. He uses the present tense. He only uses it twice in the Beatitudes. Here and in verses 9 and 10, he says yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then begins to take them on a walk through this marvelous sequence, and I wish I had time to develop this sequence. You could see it. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then he says, blessed are they that mourn that condition. This gives us an attitude of meekness, and then we hunger and thirst for righteousness, realizing we are the undeserved recipients of God's mercy. We begin to treat others the way that God has treated us. Then our hearts begin to be purified, and as our hearts begin to be purified, we become peacemakers. The very next thing is he says, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins and ends with the kingdom of heaven. But what is Jesus doing in this sequence? He's giving people unrestricted access to the Father. You recognize your spiritual poverty. You mourn that spiritual condition. This gives you an attitude of meekness. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You begin to treat others the way that God has treated you mercifully, and then you begin to treat others with mercy, and your heart begins to be purified, and you become a peacemaker. One of the most compelling and profound statements in the New Testament, monikers, names, nomenclatures for God, is this idea that He is the God of peace the God of peace. You tell me, Jesus is referred to in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 as the Prince of Peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 of, 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 of having made, had peace with God through the blood of His cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, He is our peace. This whole idea that, that God is not at enmity at us, uh, God is not at war with us, that God is not out to get us, but at some level God wants access to us. In fact, God wants us to have unrestricted access to Him, and this grand and glorious sequence of the Beatitudes culminates when He says, blessed are those whose mission is to bring the message of the Prince of Peace and of the God of Peace to those around them. Blessed are the peacemakers, and then He says, for they shall be called the sons of God. You could paraphrase that, they shall be like little Jesuses. Friends, we live in a time in which groups are vying for our allegiance. We are very similar to Jesus in this capacity. Jesus had a message about the kingdom of God and the character of God, and He had to undo all kinds of religious, cultural, and theological baggage, and Jesus stood in a place. And when he stood in that place, he said, you get access to God, not by the good that you do, but by the good that God is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he basically brings that grand sequence to its absolute fruition and maturation when he says that there will be a people whose whole mission on earth is to proclaim the God of peace, the Prince of peace, and justification by faith, which alone can bring peace with God. Beloved, that in a sentence... That, in a nutshell, is the Adventist message. God has called us to be peacemakers, to stand right here at the crucible of culture, to stand right here 
and to say strange and new things about God. To woo people to Jesus. To woo people to the Father. To woo people to the kingdom of God. We are not Pharisees. We are not the religious establishment. We are not Sadducees. We are not the religiously secular. We are not the zealots taking military, political, and carnal means. And we are not the Essenes fleeing from the condition that the world is in. We are followers of the Christ. We are peacemakers. And we need to stand in that place, in that marketplace, if you will, to stand in that place and to be God's man, to be God's woman, and to say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for heaven is their home. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they're the sons and the daughters of God. How many tonight have understood this basic presentation? How many tonight want to say with the raising of their hands, actually better yet, the standing to their feet, God, make me a kingdom changer, a world changer, as I stand in the crucible of culture with a strange and new message. Can't be the same old message. This is the Seventh-day Adventist message. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.